while to recover. I bought a new bed. It's magnificent. <laughs> it really is. I can never tell if you're starting like the starting like a dad joke on me. Or <laughs> no, 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 it's a fact. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, I can't. I can't stop <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> last one was dexmedetomidine. How are you going, Graham? I didn't tell you I pressed record. <laughs> oh, when did you press that? <laughs> when you started talking about dexmedetomidine. Oh. Okay, welcome back, everyone. <laughs> oh, can we edit that bit out? <laughs> no, I'm going to leave it in. I don't. Um, once again, I've interrupted Graham from doing some productive um, work for the, for our department and um, asked him to come into a broom cupboard. Uh, Linda's old broom cupboard. Yeah, Linda's broom cupboard. Um, yeah, I thought we'd do a... Um, a rehash of a talk that I gave a few weeks ago here uh, on a topic where when I gave the talk I, uh, I kept it a bit secret um, or I tried to I think a lot of people knew by, by the time I gave a talk what it was about I tried to start off with like some, an obscure title to see if people could figure it out as we went along I might do the same again I haven't decided yet <laughs> if, if it, if it, it looks too obscure then people might will look at the title and go I don't want to listen to that I think people worked it out pretty quickly didn't they yeah um, what was I going to say yeah so a little bit of um just a little bit of uh, news, yeah. So um, I've been thinking about how to make the uh, podcast a bit more interactive. So we did uh, in the last episode try and address uh, that poll that I um, set up. There were three um, people in the room. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, you know, uh, I think the last so the last episode was on um, GA drugs, but um, yeah. Once again, uh, if anyone out there has got any um, suggestions or wants to volunteer to uh, to help with the podcast, I'm up to trying to figure out how to do one over Zoom or something like that. Outsource. Yeah. So at the moment we just sort of, um, t- technology-wise, I'm a little bit um, handicapped and I like I like to just do it, um, I know how to use it with, you know, record a recording in person, but mm. um, I think, you know, Zoom and all that sort of stuff works pretty well. So if anyone's got any suggestions or wants to volunteer themselves, uh, give us a yell. What did you get up to the weekend, Graham? I went bushwalking. It was absolutely wonderful. Yep. It was yep. quite a hot day, wasn't it? It was warm, but... Uh, there was a nice breeze, good shade, the cloud came over, we saw some wildlife, kangaroos, yep. blue tongue lizards, dugite snakes. Yep. You mm. stand on those or try and avoid them? Uh, the dugite we try to avoid. Yep. Mm. Yeah, it's a good move. Mm. Yeah, I went for a bike ride. It was quite well camouflaged yep. on the uh, Was on it the trying track. to warm itself up on the on It the was, yeah, yep. Yeah. Yep. So you went in the morning or? In the morning, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I went for a bike ride and uh, then I was on call here yesterday, so it had to come in a couple of times, so... <clears throat> That was a bit of a downer, but I suppose someone has to do it. <laughs> they do, they do. You're um, a good man I've, for I, doing it. I take my hat off to everyone who does night shifts because uh, every time I get called in overnight, I rem- it reminds me how much I hate them. Yeah, yeah. The only good thing about night each night shift is there's one less you have to do. Yeah, that's right. Mm. But now we don't have to. Oh, you know, you and I don't have to do dedicated night shifts, so yeah, exactly. it comes as a shock to the system when we get called in and spend quite a bit of time in here. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it takes me a while to recover. I bought a new bed. It's magnificent. It <laughs> okay. really is. I can never tell if you're starting like the starting like a dad joke on me. Or <laughs> no, 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 it's a fact. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, I can't. I can't stop <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> all right. Okay, we're gonna have to. Maybe next episode we'll have some bed jokes. Mm. Yeah. All right. So um, 
when I gave this talk, I titled it um, "The Forgotten um, Sibling" or something like that. I can't remember. And yeah, so the lost, the long lost cousin. Yeah, something like. That. Anyway, so what I what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, describe to you a case which is not a real case, but it is based on uh, a couple of cases I've been involved in the last few months. So this is a hypothetical patient, although it's fairly similar to uh, what I've been involved in. I've involved in a couple of sort of serious cases in the last six months, I think it was, yeah. So, um, um, Graham, so you get called to a room on the ward, like a code blue, and there's an elderly patient with cancer. She's collapsed in the bathroom, and she has her, and so she, you know, as, as you would usually do, you ask for the uh, the numbers, you want to know the figures, because yeah, it's, yeah, and these just where where numbers been. <laughs> so her rate's 130. Her non-invasive blood pressure is 90 over 45. Her SATs are 94%. Uh, she has got some oxygen on, and her respiratory rate is 25 per minute. And she can talk, and she doesn't seem like really um, compromised. Yeah, you know, she can hold together a sentences in the conversation. So her breathing isn't stopping her from sort of talking normally, but. You can tell that she seems to be breathing faster than what you would consider normal for someone who's not doing much. All right. So, what do you, what do you reckon? I know you've heard this talk before, Graham. Well, so after, I've, after I've gone up to the sixth <laughs> what if, to the sixth floor, taken my <laughs> yeah. own pulse, yeah, you're probably oxygen probably breathing faster than her and having yeah. more trouble trying to get up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, look, I'm um, I'm concerned. What's a differential diagnosis? So. Uh, my, my, my greatest concerns are going to be cardiorespiratory disease yep. uh, and or some complication associated with her primary disease, for example, yep. um, hemorrhage yep. associated with her primary disease. I don't, has she had an operation? Um, no, she's come in for, she's had some invasive procedures, but she mm -hmm. hasn't had an operation yet. Yeah, okay, so... Um, Actually, let's just say she has an operation. She had an operation, but it wasn't a major one. It was, it was sort of taking biopsies and things. Yeah, yeah, okay. <coughs> so, um, yeah, so uh, there's, a, there's a pretty broad differential. So um, space-occupying yeah, right. space lesions in her chest, for example, yep. pneumonia or the malignancy she's in hospital for. Did I, you tell yeah, me she, she was an oncology patient? Yep. You so we're a, woman's, we're a woman's hospital. She's got a yeah. gyne, gynecological cancer, yeah. and which then, they haven't sort of sussed out yet. That's why she's getting investigated. Yeah, and I'm worried about um, cardiac disease. Either pulmonary embolus or uh, you know, ischemic heart disease, yeah. cardiomyopathy, those kinds of things. And that's why you know, a good uh, end-of-the-bed uh, look at the woman to see how she appears, feel her hands, are they warm, are they cold? Yep, and then um, examine her cardiorespiratory yep. system. So basically, it could be it could be a, just about anything, couldn't it? It's it such could. a broad differential. Infections. Which, um, what else? You've covered the main ones: infections, allergic reactions. Yep. Um, there's a whole host of things. It Absolutely. Could be. That's what. I mean, the point I was trying to make is that this is difficult to diagnose. Mm -hmm. um, I did that end of the uh, end of the bed. I was, is it called into the bed? Yeah, point of care ultrasound. Sorry, <laughs> into the into the bed is where you look at someone. Exactly. <laughs> I did a um, point of care ultrasound for the cases I was involved with, and I presumably, if I encountered such hypothetical case, I'd do the same thing again. Um, and you do you you notice that um, the right ventricle seems to be bigger than the left ventricle, and everything seems well filled. There's no pericardial effusion, but 
you're not an echocardiographer, so you can't do like all the numbers in, in Doppers and things. That's just like eyeballing things. I mean, TAPSI can be helpful if it's abnormal, which would suggest that there is a, a large pulmonary embolus. Yep. Uh, and in fact, the left ventricle, so on the paracentral long axis view, the right, the AVOT looks full, mm-hmm. um, but the LV, the, the walls are kissing, they're sort of coming together with each contraction. That is the left ventricle? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that suggests... That is what I saw in one of them. Yeah, okay. So it's quite... I mean, it's helpful. Yeah. So what does that immediately make you think more of? Immediately makes me think she's got a pulmonary embolus. Yeah, uh, something to do with the right heart, because the yeah. right heart's full and the left heart's empty. That's yeah, exactly. what I thought, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny. I thought pulmonary embolus, but I guess um, if she's got other reasons for right heart dysfunction, yeah, such that she's not filling her left heart, then yeah, could be that, too. Yeah, so mm. there could be um, other things causing it as well. I think the other obscure things, well, an, an infarction causing right yes. ventricular um, uh, dysfunction failure. or failure, so mm. in fact, um, she could have pre-existing, I didn't tell you anything about her, she could have pre-existing yep. um, pulmonary hypertension. hypertension yep. Yeah, she might be a smoker or emphysema or had pneumonectomy or, or mm. all sorts of things, or auto, autoimmune causes. Anyway, right, that's a really long intro, but yeah, basically that's... Um, there's, that was sort of what we were faced with in a couple of cases I was involved One of them was a, a patient actually arrested, but I won't go into a lot of details. Um, and the other one was less severe, but it was sort of compromised. <coughs> so, the, yeah, so the topic today I'm going to talk about is right ventricular emergencies. So or RV, yeah, so RV emergencies. Um, of which the most common one that's sort of an, uh, is an acute event is a PE, yeah. Uh, which these two patients were, and this hypothetical patient is. So, um, and I got, uh, I got motivated to do this talk because of the patients I was involved with, but mainly the first one who was the, um, you know, sort of roughly similar to the, the one I just described. Uh, and I listened to a few um, good, uh, or listened to a few good podcasts, read a few good articles, um, which I'll put some links to um, in the, uh, on, on the web page. But I guess one of them was, a, there was an MCRIT episode where they interviewed someone called uh, Dr. Sarah Crager, who's a uh, intensivist in the US who just described it really well um so yeah encourage people to listen to that talk um but it was one by on pulmonary hypertension on acrac as well and um uh, and there's some good uh, literature review of uh, certain things on another site called palmcrit right enough for the uh yeah pumping up all these other podcasts we better do a good job for ours yeah i've listened to those <laughs> three uh, and they're all excellent <laughs> right. i agree <laughs> So, but what, what um, astounded me was that um, after I read all this, I realised, I thought I knew how to manage PE, but after I uh, listened and read all about this, I thought, actually, I don't, I didn't really know as much as I thought I did. Uh, and there's a, quite a lot of um, stuff that you should do differently to um, other patients in shock, which, um, which are pretty important because you can make things worse if you do if you don't get things right. So that's why I thought it was really useful to sort of go over that because I guess there's some new things that have appeared in the last, since I was you know a trainee mm. 10, 15 years ago. Um, but first of all, I thought I'd go through the main sort of physiological um, points that you need to sort of understand in order to understand why we would do things differently. So I'm going to have a go some at uh, <laughs> explaining those over a... It works well in a in talk because I've got a few like images to show, but um, it's a bit more difficult on a like, podcast. It's like using your hands. You can't really get... A, you can't use them to get across a point. <laughs> so first of all, hypothetical question. Um, try. Yeah, I know you've heard the talk, but um, let's say now, Graham, you've got the patient deteriorates. 
um, this hypothetical patient. Her heart rate's still 130, but now her blood pressure is 65 over 40. And she's becoming confused, and her SATs are 89%, even though she's on oxygen, and her respiratory rate's gone up. What? Uh, and remember, she's just had, let's just say she's just had a big operation. Mm. So I've got, I'm going to put to you, uh, are you going to give her a f- bolus of fluid? Are you going to give her a vasopressor? Would you, if you thought that she had a PE, um, and remember, we haven't diagnosed that yet because no. the diagnosis requires something like a CTPA. Would you consider giving her thrombolysis? She's just had a big operation. Are you going to intubate her? What do you, what do you, what do you think? So, uh, I guess the point of, uh, when uh, I gave so this talk, if, I asked people to put their hands up and say if they would. So, would you, first of all, would you give a fluid bolus? Uh, depends upon the clinical assessment. So blood pressure sixty five over forty. Yeah. So, um, uh, if she has right heart dysfunction, giving her fluid bolus may not help her. Yes, that's right. So I guess the key point is that generally in these undifferentiated patients with shock on the ward that you've been called to and you've only just met them a few minutes ago, just about everyone would usually give a fluid bolus, wouldn't they? Mm, that's correct. We'll talk about whether that's a good thing or not mm. uh, a little bit later, um, if it is a right ventricular that's emergency. Correct. A vasopressor, would you give a vasopressor? A vasopressor may be helpful. Yep, um, I'll think about it. Yep, uh, uh, but again, if it... Uh, causes increased pulmonary vascular resistance, it may be unhelpful. Yeah, that's right. But uh, here in Australia, and I think in New Zealand and uh, maybe in the UK where we have metaraminol, I think that's probably what we reach yeah. for, wouldn't it? You know, yeah. Most of us, as an ESIS, exactly. make up a syringe of that and give one or two yep. mils. Yep. Uh, thrombolytic, that's a sort of something, I don't think I would use that. Oh, that's something I would use if um, you had a bit more information that could rule out things like hemorrhage and yeah, exactly. um, um, sepsis and other things. Mm. So you'd have to sort of be fairly, and, and probably if you thought that was like a last ditch thing that you couldn't do anything else. Mm. If you're in a tertiary hospital where you had cardiothoracics and things, I'd probably prefer to get them involved. But if you're in a small hospital a long way from help, thrombolysis might be the only thing you could, can offer. Exactly. <coughs> Intubation? Probably make things worse Yeah. as well. Depends on the cause once again. Mm. You'd probably get away with any patient like this if you try those other things first but yeah definitely um, so we'll talk about intubation and right ventricular emergencies later okay um, I mean, it becomes difficult if the patient has a cardiac arrest yeah because that's right. following algorithms means that those things yeah I think your hands are, forced yeah it's uh, more um, the decision when you've got a critically unwell patient mm. who you think is not conscious or protecting the airway and is not breathing that well uh, what's the next thing you should do yeah mm. all right so we've jumped ahead uh, oh, sorry, we sort of, you know, that's just setting the scene about how if you're just sort of going on autopilot and just treating someone with undifferentiated shock um, there are, and you don't realise that they've got um, an RV, acute RV event, then maybe some of the things that we normally do by sort of um, pattern recognition and um, habit may not be helpful. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to try and explain that as we go along. So trying to understand right ventricular failure, first thing we've got to talk about is the pump. So that's the right ventricle. Mm, mm. <laughs> um, so how I'm going to try and explain how the right ventricle is different to the left ventricle. So um, it's got a thin wall. It's only it's less than five millimeters, so it's not very muscular. It's a funny shape. It's like a U shape. Um, and as opposed to the left ventricle, it sort of contracts inwards and, and twists a little bit. The um, right ventricle contracts longitudinally so that's a bit like for those people who know what a like a bellows ventilator looks like certainly you know, most anaesthetists and or people who work in theatre 
you know, goes up and down. Mm-hmm. That's sort of how the right ventricle contracts. And um, and it's a bit of a wuss. It can't handle weight because it's not as muscular. Can't handle heavy loads or weights. So if the pressure in the if the pressure goes up, it it, um, it, it gets pinned under underneath the <laughs> underneath the dumbbells. Or, uh, <laughs> It gets pinned to the bench. Yeah. It, can't, it can't do the bench press. Yeah, it just can't push. You can't push. What it does to push. So it just like balloons out. Yeah. And the pipes. Okay, so you so the, so that's talking about the, the afterload or the pressure. So you know the left ventricle pumps blood into the systemic circulation, which is big. It's like the the blood, you know, the, the, all the blood vessels around the body. They're under high higher pressure, so the left ventricle has to be quite strong and can handle pumping against quite a heavy weight and that's why it's bigger and more muscular <coughs> and the left ventricle uh, sorry the right ventricle pumps the same volume of blood um, but it's just going through the lungs and it's really low pressure and so it doesn't have to work very hard but it does have to pump a lot of blood same amount mm. most, same volume but it's um, so it's sensitive to changes in that pressure more sensitive than the right than the left ventricle so if something changes the pressure and the circulation in the lungs that can really affect the right ventricle quite quite a lot. Um, yeah, so if the pressure in the le- in the pulmonary circulation goes up for, for whatever reason, the, the right ventricle may struggle. Shits itself. Mm. Okay. I don't know if I've gone into the R eating category for using the word. <laughs> I think you have. iTunes might um, censor us. I think okay. you need a bump, a beep. <laughs> uh, what are the things that change the pulmonary vascular resistance apart from blood clots? So, which are obvious. Um, Tensions of uh, gases. Yeah, that's right. So oxygen, con- uh, uh, oxygen tension and CO two tension in particular. Yeah. So hypoxia, hypoxia puts hyp- up the pulmonary vascular resistance and yeah. hypercarbia. Well, and acidosis hypercarbia. as well. Yeah. Yep. Probably the first, the, like you said, the hypoxia and hypercarbia. Mm. And then acidosis is um, yes synergistic with those two. So if you're acidotic and hypoxic and hypercarbic, it's bad. Mm. The pulmonary, all the pulmonary vas- vascular um, beds. Constrict and then the pulmonary pressures go right up, yep. and it's not easy for the right ventricle to pump. And if nothing can get through the right ventricle, no, if the, then, not, then the left ventricle is empty basically and it can't mm. pump blood around the body. And it's also um, perfused, obviously. Yes. There's some differences. Yes, you've seen my next slide. <laughs> uh-huh. There's some differences <laughs> in the way the left and, ve- and right ventricles are perfused. Yeah, so once again, uh, the, so the, le- w- the left ventricle is big and muscular and needs a lot of um, blood. Oxygen and blood flow, but it gets it only gets most of its blood flow in, in um, diastole. Um, diastole, that's right. Mm. Yeah, when so there's no pressure in the wall, and the diastolic systemic diastolic pressure is usually like you know sixty or seventy or something. Mm. So there's a lot of fl- blood flow through the coronaries into the left ventricular muscle, muscle, but it doesn't really get in much blood flow at all during systole. So it only gets perfused, you know, um, uh, intermittently. Um, but what's the what about the right coronary and the right heart? So the, so the, the right, right ventricle gets. Oh, sorry, the right ventricle gets perfused throughout the cardiac cycle. Yeah, and <clears> uh, the majority of the perfusion occurs during. Uh, sorry. So the perfusion occurs the whole all the time. Yeah, yeah always, exactly. So it's yeah. quite. And, and so it's when used to getting lots of perfusion. Yeah, and when there's increased tension within the wall, of the right ventricle, perfusion is impaired. Yeah, so during so let's just let's take a, a normal case. So it's like a normal healthy person. The, the systemic blood pressure is 120 over 80, mm-hmm. and the pulmonary circulation is 15 over zero. Yes. So usually in systole, there's a driving pressure of 120 minus 15 is like 105. Yes. Pushing blood into the right 
uh, to perfuse the right ventricle. And then in, in diastole, there's a perfusion pressure of 80 minus zero, so 80. So mm. it's basically getting well perfused. Now let's imagine that someone has a PE or um, they've got pulmonary hypertension and it acutely gets worse because we make them hypercarbic or hypoxic or something. So suddenly their systemic blood pressure is 60 over 40 and their pulmonary pressure is 55 over 25. So the driving pressure during systole is 60 minus 55, so there's only five millimeters of mercury difference. So there's not gonna be much blood going down the right coronary with, with that sort of difference in mm. pressure. And then in diastole, it's 40 minus 25, so that's only 15 millimeters. So you can see there's like a huge, su suddenly there's a huge problem mm. um, of getting blood into the, to perfuse the right ventricle. I mean, with your blood pressure 60 over 40, it's probably not great for your left ventricle either, but your left ventricle seems to be quite tough. <coughs> it's, been, it's, been living in the, it's been living in the Bronx. It can take a, it can take a few punches. <laughs> and that's, a, that's a pretty crap analogy. Yeah. I think but the Bronx, is, the Bronx is very gentrified these days. Is it? Yeah, yeah, probably. Living in the Bronx in the 1970s. <laughs> what is it, what's it, where's the better place? Um, oh, I don't know. I don't want to pick on anyone. No, I'll get into trouble. Mm. I've got a few in mind, you know, I just held back. <laughs> All right. Tank. Oh, my God. The okay. tank. Do you reckon I've done a good job so far explaining it? It's hard. Yeah, I think so. It is hard. I think okay. so. I think, you, uh, like, I would uh, recommend there's a page so, in Kerry Brandis's book. Yep. It's definitely worth having a look at that um, yep. that diagram. So all this stuff I did learn and I didn't know it, but I just I just reckon it wasn't in, the top, uh, in my mind when I was thinking about, you know, having to run to a ward and, and deal with someone who had a pee. Anyway. I, I don't think it's taught that well. Yeah, I think there's Putting greater all together. There's greater a, awareness now. Yeah, uh, but but mainly it's prompted by clinical experiences like yeah. you had. Yeah, reflection. Reflection. Anyway, maybe yeah. other people who are listening didn't know, uh, do know all this stuff. It's just it's just like a personal revelation that I've had. <laughs> Tank. So um, so this is relevant to um, fluids. So in this acute situation where the right ventricle is failing, you know, because of a PE or some other event. The right ventricle is big, and the left ventricle is not under underfilled. But part of the problem is that the in most people who have a normal pericardium, it's a bit like the uh, the brain in the in, in the skull. Mm. It's there's a limited amount of real estate for filling things. So you sort of think low blood pressure give fluids, but actually if the right ventricle is already distended, or the right atrium and right ventricle already distended, if you give more fluids, you'll just make them bigger. Mm and they will squish the left ventricle and the right and the left atrium and seeing so, you know some of the things you can see on echo is the septum you know pushing inwards and compressing the left ventricle and stopping it from, you know worsening filling so basically you may even make the left ventricle um, left ventricular filling worse yes so giving fluid uh, can make things a lot worse because uh, that fluid is just ending up on the right side and it's not getting through to the left mm. So that's the, that's the thing about the tank. It's the, their interdependence, I guess. Interdependence between the, 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 the left and the right heart. They're not separate beings. Mm. Uh, Point of care echocardiography is really helpful for those yeah. kinds of situations. <coughs> Great. So like the uh, parasternal short axis view yes. is you're scanning up and down, especially the sort of the ventricular views mm. below the sort of you know, mitral valve and down. You know, yes. Great for looking at the septum. Um, I wish I'd done that in the case I had. I didn't actually do that, but I thought about it afterwards when I you know, learned up a bit. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So, so that's the physiology. So now we're sort of understanding what we should be doing. Now, well, we're, well I think we understand when I try and explain the principle, core principles of managing someone who's in shock from a PE. 
So, going to go through like five steps yes. uh, of sort of fixing someone, you know, that hypothetical patient we had with blood pressure over 65 over 40, um, what we should do. Yes, and um, I adopted the five steps that Sarah Craig talks, uh, talks about. So fluids, one, don't get fluid. So that would, so this is really useful, I think, having a quick look at someone's heart when they collapse on the ward. Because obviously, I don't know about you, Graham, but most of the time when someone's got blood pressure of 60 over 40 in our hospital, they're having a hemorrhage. And yes. <laughs> and you, that's what you should be doing, filling them, mm. yeah, giving them filling. So, so it is pretty important to know whether they have or haven't got that. And the other thing is I remember, I remember vividly when I was an intern, I had a cancer patient who... Um, um, who actually had a, this big pericardial effusion that we, that we missed, and uh, she almost died for, um, because we didn't realise she had tamponade. So yes. having a quick look at someone's heart, especially in cancer and other rare con- you know, other conditions, yeah, that was another, another reason why I was motivated to have a quick look at her heart. Mm. I mean, oxygen. That's on, another topic. She, I mean, you've already said she's got oxygen on, but oxygen yeah. on is yeah. uh, really helpful. Yes, yeah, so don't get fluid if if you think she's had a PE. Yeah. Um, and the right heart's dilated and the left heart's empty. Systemic blood pressure, we just talked about how mm. if the blood pressure is 65 over 40, you've got to do something about that because the right ventricle is really sensitive to hypoperfusion. So I would give, I don't know about you, but I would give some metaraminol. Yeah, exactly. Yep. We're going to talk about which vasopressors are better later, but mm-hmm. just something to get the systemic blood pressure up. Um, ideally, we'll talk about the, you want it to constrict the systemic circulation and make the uh, arterial blood pressure go up but you don't really want it to constrict the pulmonary circulation, which is already compromised. Yes. Um, so we'll talk about the differences in those. If some way you could open up the pulmonary circulation. So when you have a PE, my understanding and the teaching is that it's the, the, the blockage or to flow is a combination of physical or mechanical blockage by the clot, the blood clot actually just blocking the vessels and stopping blood flowing through them. But also the, you know, the blood... Um, releases a lot of cytokines and thromboxanes and all those sort of yeah. um, biologically active substances which can cause vasoconstriction as well. And on top of that, of course, obviously when someone gets compromised, they don't become, they lose consciousness, they become a bit hypoxic, a bit hypercarbic, they're not mm. breathing properly. So all of those things worsen it. Mm-hmm. So so actually the, pul- you know, the, the pulmonary vascular resistance and pressure is a combination of both and you can fix, and some of those are fixable. So trying to vasodilate the pulmonary circulation is important and it de- and definitely helps. Mm. And then the other things you can think about is like um, how to help the heart with inotropes and just general, you know, in whether or not you should intubate someone, which is always in the back of your mind and someone who's really compromised. <coughs> and that may not be, maybe just you should have a little bit more of a handbrake on yourself, you know, hold back from doing that because of the cardiovascular effects of intubating someone and someone who's had a PE. Even if they're not conscious, you might like suddenly take someone who's severely shocked to being completely arrested. Okay. Um, all right. And thrombolysis. Yeah. So I guess if someone's about to die on this and you've tried everything else, you got you might have to do that. Mm. So knowing where your thr- thrombolytics are. Are they the five steps? Yeah, that's it. I'm just trying. I'm skipping through because I, uh, I, I wanted to talk about vasopressors. I think. Yeah. So, um, do you want to tell me about vasopressors? I'm getting sick of my voice. So the, uh, what? Well, just tell me the principle. What? What sort of vasopressor do you want in someone who has a 
who's, who's got systemic hypotension, so they're in shock, and they have had just had a PE. Yeah, so ideally you want a vasopressor that acts on the systemic circulation but not on the Bormley circulation yeah. in terms of increasing the vascular resistance. Yep. Um, and so while uh, we traditionally use uh, adrenergic agents, yep. either with alpha or beta effects, there may be some benefits from using different medications. Yeah, so the alpha alpha adrenergic um, receptors are in the pulmonary circulation, so pure alpha agonists like phenylephrine and maybe slightly less, metaraminol has got some better effects. Yes. They're down the bottom of the list of being probably not the greatest because even though you're going to bring the systemic vascular resistance up and improve the arterial blood pressure, the systemic arterial blood pressure, you're also probably going to, to some degree, constrict the pulmonary circulation, and that's counterproductive. Mm. Um, so then a bit further down the adrenergic list, noradrenaline and adrenaline, obviously a lot more beta agonist activity, and some of that may... Uh, so in s- smaller doses, I think, that they're thought to be less of a, a worry. But um, the ideal vasopressor is vasopressin. Mm. Um, studies have shown that it has minimal effects on the pulmonary circulation, but a very good systemic... Uh, vasopressor. So that's the ideal one to use. Mm. We're pretty familiar with metaraminol. How, how often do you use vasopressin as a vasopressor? Very, very, <laughs> very rarely. Yeah, so there's a downside. But I'm trying it? to teach my brain <laughs> to think it yeah. sooner rather than later. Like I remember using it when I was in ICU as um, a set, an agent to add in, in sepsis and mm. things like that. But um, like, you know, running to the ward or having someone who has an acute event, Jesus, it's not really in my head. Mm. But nowadays we've got, you know, I guess... There's plenty of ways we're interconnected in this world and we can always just phone people. Um, so the thing you need to remember, I guess, is that if you're sure or very fairly sure that this is a right ventricular emergency and you need to give some sort of vasopressor, if you, the only thing you remember is vasopressin is the one to use mm. and then f- find someone to tell you how to give it, uh, even if it's been two years since you thought about it. That's probably the take-home message, isn't it? Yes. But yeah, so vasopressin is the, is the vasopressor to use. Do you, do you um, draw it up? There's different way, uh, different protocols wherever you are. You know, there's, so people have different um, protocols depending on their institutions, and they use it for different things. You know, using it for an acute PE is slightly different to what it's used for mainly. I think, mm. which my guess is, it's mainly used as a um, as a synergistic vasopressor in patients with septic shock yeah, in the ICU. You know, they're on noradrenaline and vasopressin usually. I've seen the gynecologist and injected into uh, lyomyoma ta. Yeah. Uh, prior to morselation. Yeah. So at, fibroids. At, yeah, and that yeah. has a very, uh, I mean, it's very um, potent vasoconstrictor, uh, yep. or at least a potent. Um, yeah. Uh, stimulus to systemic blood pressure going up. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I've seen, you know, you can put surgeons injecting a marcan and adrenaline, and that often causes tachycardia and hypertension. Um, but they've also used um, dilute solutions of noradrenaline when they've injected all the fibroids and done myomectomies. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so you're exactly right, yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Yes, I think some of our cardiothoracic colleagues use vasopressin maybe a bit more than we do because mm. they have to deal with patients who have... Um, pulmonary hypertension and um, you know they know they understand that vasopressin is probably better than some of the other uh, vasopressors so there's people out there anyway so the, the infusion so what I, I was involved in one of our cases I was involved we did use it and um, we used the um, standard dilution that is used uh, in some places and which was basically um, 20 units in a 50 mil 
um, syringe. So, and that's sort of 50 mil syringe is the sort of standard volume of, you know, things like noradrenaline and adrenaline. So 0.4 uh, of a and, unit and per mil. Units. Yeah, so it's point. Yeah, that's right, 0.4 units per mil. And we, and I think like a good starting rate that most people have told me is like somewhere around six mils an hour, and then you, and you sort of change the infusion depending on the, on your effect. And do you give a bolus? Um, listen, some places don't give boluses, and I think, yeah, it's probably safer as an infusion. But there, but I did find one resource, um, which was the ACRAC one we were talking about, pulmonary hypertension, it was a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist talking about it, and he did mention using like, you know, small boluses. So I'm not a pretend I'm an expert in use of vasopressin. I gave a one mil bolus and it did work pretty well. Okay. <coughs> but it okay. has it has a very long half life um, vasopressin, so it's sort of it's not like um, really short acting vasopressin uh, vasopressor agents like adrenaline or adrenaline. So you'll be a bit careful, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, that's my take on it. Like you know, I haven't used it very much at all, but it did work very well. All right. So I think we've explained that, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, what's the next thing to talk we, about? We invested yeah, we in some special that. equipment recently. Yes. Now, the thing that I'd never heard of until I looked into this, but um, so inhaled well, pulmonary vasodilators, and you can give them as, as an inhaled infusion or you can give them parentally, can't you? But inhaled pulmonary vasodilators are really useful. Like prostacycline? Yeah. So the common ones that most people would have heard of are prostacycline and nitric oxide. I know a lot of intensive care units. Mm. The neonatal intensive care unit here, which um, uh, in the hospital we work in, you know, I'm sure um, uses inhaled nitric oxide for some of its um, neonate patients. Um, and most adult intensive care units have the apparatus to deliver inhaled nitric oxide as well, which is a very good um, pulmonary vasodilator. But it's pretty hard for us to give that in a peripheral hospital or on the ward or, mm. you know, in recovery or a- anywhere um, outside of like a you know, proper intensive care unit. So, um, but but what is discussed well in some of the uh, links that I'll put in there is that the, there's some pretty good evidence and some pretty good research showing that um, inhaled melanone and probably more useful because most people have access to this, inhaled GTN uh, are both very good um, sort of uh, low-tech uh, pulmonary vasodilators that have relatively no or minimal effects on the on the systemic arterial circulation but work really well on um, lowering the pulmonary vascular resistance mm. which is really what you want because basically you want to open that up take the pressure off the right ventricle so it can pump better and get more blood through the circulation uh, into the left atrium Whew. so yeah so that was, that was a revelation for me I'd never heard of that because um, yeah so you can basically just take GTN and stick it in a nebulizer if the patient's awake or not intubated, sorry. Um, gets a bit more complicated if they're intubated and not got a circuit. You've got to find a way of nebulizing um, GTN. Mm. And the dose is five milligrams for both melanone and GTN. Okay. So we have, there's different, around the world, there's different concentrations or preparations of GTN. So you can get these big, uh, large ampules and where it's where it's quite dilute. We have um, a 10 mil ampule with 50 milligrams in it, don't we? So like one mil is mm. five milligrams. Mm. So you could dilute. You could either just get that neat or dilute it in a few mils. Up to five like. mils or whatever, as we yeah. would yeah. a ventolin nib. Like a like a nib, yeah. yeah. And just give it, and you can just give it continuously. Apparently, so um, the GTN, the effects, you know, the pulmonary vasodilation probably um, lasts sort of thirty to forty-five minutes or so. I think, from the sounds of things, if you give it as an, uh, a nebulizer, which is 
fairly short acting, so you probably have to keep giving it. And obviously, if you've got someone who's really sick, you're probably going to be ending up sending them to or transferring them to somewhere yeah. definitive for definitive care. And they may be able to, you know, give something a bit more uh, um, traditional, like and how prostacyclins do some thrombolysis to a pulmonary embolectomy. Um, yeah, all those other things. Comments? Oh, I've got stuck on thinking, does it affect airway <laughs> smooth muscle tone? Inhale GTN. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Interesting. But mm. so basically, the, and they talk about it in the, in, in the links. I'm not going to go into the like, detailed my, um, uh, yeah, microscopic receptor things, but basically, GTN is turned into nitric oxide. Um, so it works in the back exactly the same mechanism as, not, as inhaled nitric oxide. Um, yeah, it probably does. Mm. I don't know. Smooth muscle in the. In the um, and the bronchial so probably mm. helps with um, bronchospasm too, I'm guessing. Yeah. But which, you know, I don't, I'm not sure. Um, that's why I'm looking so um, confused. I'm just thinking about that. <laughs> so yeah, that's a good. So that's something to keep in the back of your mind. Mm. And then there was a lot of there's a lot of discussion about that. And I think that's the thing that sort of piqued most people's interest because like this is something we can all we can all do. Anyone who works in um, anesthesia, critical care, emergency medicine. You know, we're all capable of giving someone nebulized GTN, mm. and this could be a really useful thing. That's probably not that well known, is it? Mm. So that w- I think that's quite an interesting take-home thing that I've never, never heard of, and I've, I've definitely put it away in, in my pocket for future use. Um, that's it, basically. So I think the one other thing was like talking about um, whether or not to intubate someone. So it's difficult when you, because most of the patients that we have, we're going to send them to another hospital. We don't even have a CT scanner here, so the definitive um, imaging is, you know, CTPA usually, mm. um, if they're stable enough. And so even for us, you know, we're always going to be transferring someone across town uh, in an ambulance. And, like, sometimes, you know, I know for our colleagues working in uh, error medical retrieval, RFDS and things like that, which I know you've worked in, um, Graham, mm. you know, if there's even any hint of instability, you like to have them tubed, don't you? But with people who've had acute PEs, the, the the sort of left ventricular filling is on a knife edge, and, a, and if you if you intubate them, they basically uh, they're, they're really easy to put into PEA, aren't they? Yeah, but I think the experience may be that the intubations occurred in the context of a advanced life support, yeah, and that sometimes uh, external cardiac compression is therapeutic, yep. which sometimes in my experience, has occurred at the same time as intubation. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion either mm. way, but I think you should you I think should think carefully about it. It's not like someone who's just had an overdose and you, it's sort of a no-brainer. Oh, they're not really awake. Um, yeah, so this is for the more safe. semi-elective. This or is the more like, oh, well, this person's mm. blood pressure is 80 over 45 mm. and they take a cardiac and we've got to fly a few hours across across the desert. Should we just put a tube down now? Mm. They might be better off spontaneously ventilating. Oh, yeah, and they're being, oh, yeah. shit, shit. Now mm. we're doing CPR and the <laughs> we haven't even left. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm just hypothesising. Mm. That's that's what's talked about on the other the other people talk about it. Yeah. Um, and they, there was the one paper that they quoted um, that um, patients who were, um, there was uh, a paper on anesthesia and analgesia of like, of all the patients that came to theatre for an emergency pulmonary embolectomy, so they they were putting intubated and put to sleep by experienced cardiothoracic anaesthetists who knew they had a PE and they knew that they had to be careful. Twenty percent of them still had a cardiac arrest on intubation. Yes. <laughs> so even though they were being super cautious, so I don't know that was something that was something to throw out there. Said I haven't got. I'm running out of 
mouth's gone dry mm. and ran out of stuff. So I guess the things that I really found interesting were point of care reco to to have a look. We didn't talk about having a look at the um, leg veins, did we? Um, no, right, apparently that increases the sensitivity and specificity of any of your of the likelihood of them having a PE. If you if you have a quick look at someone's uh, femoral veins, you know, of that, which is where most um, large PEs come from, the mm. DVT down there. Um, if you can see you know, a non-compressible clot in the femoral vein, that's that's a good thing to have a look at. Um, uh, it's pr- pretty simple to do. Most of us are good at imaging veins and arteries. Yes. Um, and then the other take-homes that I were, you know, thinking about vasopressors, giving oxygen. We didn't say oxygen. is a really good pulmonary vasodilator. Yeah, I think I said that before the five points. Yeah, yeah. Having the oxygen so on get, was very useful. We're getting excited by GTN. Yeah. Give them high-flow oxygen, mm. as much oxygen as you can give, because that's a really good pulmonary vasodilator. Yeah. Um, keeping their blood pressure up, that's key. Mm. And if using vasopressin, if you can. Most places have vasopressin. Uh, and then the inhaled pulmonary vasodilators, yep. All right, I'm going to give you the first chance to tell us a dad joke. The only, <laughs> jokes, usually, I've usually heard, the only jokes I've heard recently have been, uh, you know, my children are getting older. You know, my, my dad jokes are getting ruder. <laughs> well, I don't want iTunes to uh, send me out and then I get five listens. This is a family show. Maybe should we, should we save the dad jokes or another time? Oh, you must have one, at least. Oh, did I tell you I got burgled the other night? No. They took everything except um, soap and shampoo. Dirty bastards. (laughs) 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 All right. Very good. We're going to leave it there. Okay. Uh, Thanks thanks for hanging in there, everyone. That's 41 minutes, so that's a long talk. That's a long talk. Thanks, Roger. Okay. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.obsandgynecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.